most of modern neuroscience finds its roots in an understanding of vision. Our understanding of, of other senses has really lagged. And so we know quite a bit about hearing and how we, how we detect and organize information about sounds. But smell has been neglected despite the fact that it's both important and mysterious. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, Executive Director, and today we are delving into one of the most underrated senses, one that we often take for granted till it disappears. I speak, of course, of smell. Just imagine not having that distinctive aroma of coffee, the lavender feels of our childhood, even the powerful smell of a mother to her baby, which has a stronger draw than touch. In some intricate and mysterious way, scent, emotion, and memory intertwine in the brain to create a fundamental sensorial map of the world. Yet given that olfaction is the primary sense used by most animals to communicate with their environment and make sense of the world, we still don't know a lot about it. Well, maybe all this is about to change for the good. Since the pandemic, research has intensified due to the very large number of people who've lost their sense of smell. Luckily, this condition, anosmia, is usually temporary, but it's still debilitating. To help us unlock some of the mysteries of our olfactory system, we have three experts in the field today. Bob Dutta is Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. Venki Murthy is Professor of Molecular and Cellular Biology at Harvard Center for Brain Science. And Dr. Eric Holbrook is Director of Rhinology at Mass Ear. Well, big Pandora's box of questions for everybody today. So let's start with you, Bob. We know that smell is the oldest of the senses, yet vision, sound, and touch all seem to get the attention. So why is it that in terms of neuroscience history, smell seems to be so late to the game? I think the reason why neuroscientists haven't paid as much attention to smell as perhaps we as scientists and doctors would like is because neuroscientists are humans and humans really think of themselves as visual creatures. So, you know, when, when we interact with the world, the primary way in which we do so, uh, at least from our own self-perspective is through our eyes, right? We gaze upon the world, we map out space and, and we interact you know, with objects and people through sight. Uh, and, you know, if you uh, think about, you know, how, how uh, deeply our current lives have been shaped by, you know, visuals that we're getting off the internet, right? Uh, it's obvious that vision has a kind of deep meaning and resonance for us. If you look in the brain, about a third of the human brain is devoted to vision. So when neuroscientists in the 50s began inventing neuroscience, inventing the process through which, you know, we peer into the brain and ask how it works, the very first questions they asked really were centered around, you know, how does the, the brain allow us to see? And as a consequence of, of, I think, those very early decisions and that very human perspective on what was important, most of modern neuroscience finds its roots in, a, in an understanding of vision. And our understanding of, of other senses has, been, has, has really lagged. Uh, obviously, we're also creatures that communicate through you know, communicate verbally. It's part of what makes us human as well. And, and so we know quite a bit about hearing, right? Uh, and how we, how we detect and organize information about sounds. But smell has been neglected despite the fact that it's um, both important and mysterious. Uh, and I think now um, 
now that we know a little bit about vision, uh, and now that, now that we um, have better tools for understanding how the brain works, I think smell is beginning to undergo a kind of renaissance and neuroscientists are really beginning to pay attention to how you know, we can inhale an odor and uh, that odor is capable of generating you know, if incredibly evocative percents. Okay, so over to you, Venki, welcome. You mentioned that it's easier to replicate images and sounds uh, for research purposes. So why is it so difficult to do it with smell? Is it something to do with smell being grounded in individual perception? You actually mem talked yesterday about going back to India after many years away and suddenly visiting all these exotic smells, which you were familiar with, but you said some people would find pretty unpleasant or, or just not familiar. So to go back to your, maybe your first question, so why is it um, difficult to replicate? I think to bounce off of something Bob mentioned briefly, you know, we're all looking at the screen now and listening to the speakers of a, of a computer, right? It's so facile. I mean, every smartphone has one of the most sophisticated you know, the light detectors, camera, and the light producers, the screen, right? Same thing with sound, microphone, and speakers. So think of what is a microphone and what is a speaker for smells. And I think the, the thing is that you have to actually produce the, the actual physical object, the chemicals, in order for you to then uh, be able to smell. So if, if you think there is you now a few dozen odors among the 800 that gives you the perception of coffee, you have to reproduce all whatever, 30 or, or more of them for you to get that in the coffee, or at least some, some number. It's very, very hard now. So you have thousands of chemicals. If you really have to store all of those in some little device and spritz it out, it, you know, it, it's just hard. Similarly, detecting, if I have thousands of chemicals, our noses are a spectacularly quick, reversible, and complex sensitive devices. And we, we just don't have chemical detectors that are nearly as sophisticated in terms of the speed, reversibility, and the versatility. So I think it's, um, it's, it's just a detection and production problem. And I don't know the answer, how we're gonna get around, but I hope that you know, we, we start thinking more about the engineering of those, those devices. The second point, which is that even if we were to do that, meaning have devices that can produce smells and record smells, there's still this suspicion that we don't know how to give that specific smell of a rose that is a rose in some objective way for everybody. So this is where the subjectivity comes in. And I think there's probably parts that are universal or nearly universal. And you know, we don't know yet, but the, I know one hopes there is. But even if we were to produce something, we don't know exactly like how do I, what exactly do I give so that everybody smells a beautiful rose? That comes to the subjective part. And I think, you know, going back to what you said about in, you know, India, it's more that uh, it just occurred to me, like the, as long as I grew up in India, those smells were completely internalized were in the background. But when it moved away and when you're in a completely different environment for some period, you're, you've sort of forgotten or dishabituated, right, to those things. Mm -hmm. When you go back, it's familiar, but yet you're smelling it in some sense for the, for the first time. And so I think maybe that's, that's the point you're making. I wanted to invite the audience at this point to send us in the Q&A what their favorite and most repulsive smells are, because I actually like the smell of skunk. Uh, and I know I'm in a minority here. I, I don't mean on me, but around. I love the smell when the skunk has been on the, near a car or on the street. 
I like I like that musky smell. I think it's very earthy. But anyway, I was wondering how that equated what, with what other people uh, think about the topic. Somebody's written in here, and I'm not sure what it means. Dorian is a classic example, loved and hated. What's it's a kind of fruit that I think, and you know, I'm sure Bob is familiar with. So I think I grew up, you know, in a, we call it jackfruit in India. And I think oh, right, that's right, um, right. people, yeah, yeah, people, you know, either uh, like it or just hate it. <laughs> yeah. Balsam fur. Petrol smells my biggest nightmare. Interesting. So <laughs> let's now, just for a minute, because we're going to talk to Dr. Holbrook about the, the problem with losing your sense of smell. Uh, somebody says they love the smell of wood burning. Spoiled cantaloupe, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I first met Eric Colbrook at Mass Ironeer. And when I went in there, they gave me this book with about 40 pages to scratch and sniff different smells. And a lot of them smelt like chemicals to me. The bubble gum, there was a synthetic kind of strawberry. And you were meant to, again, I think a lot of people now think that's strawberry, you know. They get a McDonald's strawberry shake and they think that that's strawberry. Anyway, uh, about half of the tests I got wrong. And then the therapy, I think, was to go away and you had to sniff essential oils, four particular essential oils or five, uh, two or three times a day for the next few months to kind of retrain your brain to identify the sense with the right word. I think that's right. Dr. Holbrook, you must be deluged with people now coming in your office, uh, with, including kids, with this lack of uh, smell. So are you still passing around the essential oils? <laughs> I am. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately beyond causes that are related to like sinus infections and chronic sinus disease and polyps. There's uh, not a lot out there in terms of medical therapy. In the olfactory training, what you're describing, smelling these four odors twice a day, every day, is something that has been looked at by multiple different clinicians and scientists and found that uh, by testing, at least, there is an improvement in groups that are doing this, groups of patients that are doing it versus those that aren't doing the training. It's hard to control for this type of study, obviously, and and to really know how much of a benefit it's giving, it's, it's difficult to know because one of the good things about the olfactory system is that as compared to vision or hearing, it is able to repair itself. The olfactory neurons are able to grow back again. The cells of the epithelium are able to divide, make new neurons. And so it is you know, somewhat improved in that point compared to some of the other senses. So when you're comparing like whether or not something's working in terms of an, a therapy, you also have to take into account that there is spontaneous recovery that can occur. And Bob, did your sense of smell return exactly as before or was it in any way altered? Yes, no, it was, it was, uh, it was uh, quite altered when it was altered. I had some chemotherapy when I, when I was in my 20s and uh, I lost my sense of smell and taste for uh, six weeks, two months. Uh, but then it came back just fine. But, but I remember what it was like when it was gone. It was, it was really jarring and disorienting and you know, food tasted terrible. And um, yeah, it was, it was really disconcerting. So I, I very much understand how people are, are feeling um, off, you know, when they lose their sense of smell as a consequence of COVID. Yeah, well, I was reading up a little bit. Um, I had no idea that how important it was in terms of how primal um, it was in, in the brain. 
and that it can kind of create all these pathways to other things. The thing that, that strikes me is, for example, treacle pudding. I first had that at school and it was a squidgy, heavy, ugly lump of this suet <laughs> which had a pong, a terrible smell to it, which made me want to throw up before I even tasted it. And so there was this visceral, textural, visual and, and smell, this repulsive smell, all tied into that one experience. And I just wondered, I mean, I've never eaten it since. I have been able to rediscover foods <laughs> I didn't like as a child. But I wonder if you can reprogram that whole series of things that happened from that one lump of pudding. Does anyone relate to that at all? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting about the olfactory system, I think, you know, Eric, I'm sure you've seen this clinically and Vicky and I see it in the science, is how plastic and changeable the parts of your brain are that are associated with smell. The smell clearly kind of has these, these two, like as Vicky was describing, these kind of two components. On the one hand, you know, it's probably true that smells all have a kind of common character, right? Citrus fruits probably smell like citrus to all of us. Uh, but at the same time, they're deeply personal. Uh, and experience dependent, you know, our own personal, as you were just describing your, your own personal experience with the suet, <laughs> you, know, you know, really turns you off. Whereas I might find that to be delicious potentially, <laughs> right? And, but it's exactly this plasticity, this, this ability of your brain to individualize your experience with, you know, particular smells that, that also kind of gives you the tools to change your perception over time, right? And, and, we, and we all know this to be true when you were a kid, Right. You hated coffee. I mean, I certainly did. Right. I hated, you know, you know, beer or coffee. There's lots of there's lots of such smells and tastes that, that mm. were just horrible. And, you know, in the morning now, I can't live without you know, two, two full cups. And in the evening, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of scotch to end the day. Right. And that's very different from the way I used to perceive those, those smells and tastes. Uh, and so experience plays a predominant role, which which which, you know, is, is, is certainly intuitive and at least a little bit rationalizes, you know, why smell training might work. Uh, you know, it's clear that your brain is constantly kind of rewiring itself to remind itself of what it likes in terms of smells and what it doesn't like. And, and it's rewiring itself, you know, continuously in the nose and in the brain um, to, to help you understand what smells are. Uh, and, that, and that very process can help you change your perspective on smells, you know, over time. So I was wondering, Mary, so there's several questions, um, people talking about taste versus a smell. And I think and Eric obviously can give you know, a great uh, clinical answers, but I think it might be worth just taking 20 seconds to clarify. So I think, I think when people say taste, most often what they mean is flavor, which is a combination of the taste and the smell. So when you chew food, the, the molecules, basically some of the aroma goes up through the back of your, and the roof of your palate to the olfactory system. And you're actually smelling your food sort of mm -hmm. backwards. It's called retronasal olfaction. So what, when you're chewing food and volatilizing it, that's really flavor. That's a combination of smell and taste. So, which is why if you lose just the sense of smell, but the taste is mostly okay, you still find it awful because your flavor, your basic taste are there, you know, the sweet, bitter, whatever, five or six. But that's actually, that's very important to understand that what people commonly think of taste is most likely kind of uh, flavor. This is smell and taste. So some of the people who are mentioning that they lost smell, but not quite taste. I'm curious to hear how, how this is uh, in Eric's opinion now with, uh, with the COVID when people come in now, taste versus smell. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's been a lot of studies 
good and bad that have been done since this pandemic started and the recognition of um, problems with loss of smell. And that question always comes up because one of the first things that a lot of people recognize is the lack of uh, ability to appreciate flavor of food, right? So then you have to sort it out because when they do actual testing of taste and smell, there are a small percent of people from the pandemic, from COVID-19 that actually have some diminished ability to taste sweet, salty, bitter, sour in umami, which is a fit taste. In addition to that, and Vink, you probably have interest in this also, is the um, possible effect on the trigeminal system. So um, another nerve in your nose and in your mouth can detect chemicals, uh, but it's more of um, the heat, um, the spiciness, so to speak. But when we talk about that, we have to be very specific about like capsaicin, for instance, that gives you the hotness to hot uh, buffalo wings or something like that, or chili powder. Um, but that that also um, contributes quite a bit to flavor of food and your whole experience of eating. So a lot of my time when I evaluate patients is really getting down to the basics of what is really bothering them and teasing it out and asking them, okay, for taste, can you tell if something is salty when you eat potato chips or pretzels? Can you tell there's salt on it? Things like that. And so um, it's an important factor because you really want to tell if some, you, you want to know what part of the system is actually causing the problem with COVID-19 it's the vast majority of it is is sense of smell I wanted to get to Bob's point about the plasticity of olfaction which I, I think is also an important part of you know why we use uh, olfactory training because it can be changed to some degree and that's been recognized in the past uh, years ago in people who have specific congenital or specific loss of smell for certain odors and uh, some of the scientists that were working on this actually found that uh, if you practice smelling that odor, you can get some of it back again. And it's not well known why that reason is. Some people feel it might be similar to master wine tasters, for instance, that can really hone in their ability to smell and detect certain chemicals in what they're tasting and smelling or what they're drinking and look for impurities and they practice on these battery of odors to really be able to hone in on those senses. So it may be something more higher up central in the brain, but some of the uh, studies that I have been doing or did in the past, looking at mice for instance, and, and uh, how the nerves, specific nerves that have their own specific ability to detect certain odors, after exposing them, after damaging the nerves over and over, there is a difference in the amount of those nerves that come up when the cells divide to make new neurons. And in some cases, it almost looked like they were making better targets back to the brain. So there might be a specific cellular reason for it, but also a, a higher order kind of reprocessing or honing in of the brain on certain signals that might be working. So overall, the system is, I agree, very plastic, and maybe we can alter it to certain degrees. We've got tons of comments coming in now. So um, uh, some of them are really interesting. Someone said, uh, Everett Briggs said, no loss of smell, but following a head injury in 2001, my sense of smell and taste became very amplified and has remained so. I can smell cigarettes at 100 yards. 
India, always an amazing sensory experience on subsequent visits, has become an olfactory assault. <laughs> if smell is affected by a brain injury, isn't it usually lost? Well, I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to be a loss. That's the most common complaint is, um, you know, when people come to see clinicians um, for smell problems, it's typically a diminished sense of smell. Let's say uh, a good example are people with migraines, for instance. Some of them are specifically sensitive to smells that can trigger their migraines. And that, again, might be a more higher processing type of issue that um, triggers the migraine and makes them more sensitive. So it could be that. In addition, uh, in COVID-19 is a good example of this. When people are recovering from their smell loss months after the initial infection, they can get a distortion in their sense of smell when they're smelling things called parosmia. And, you know, that's aversive also. People don't like what they're smelling and try to get away from it. So there's many reasons why, you know, the head injury could have had this effect. But overall, yes, and it's typically a diminished sense of smell or loss of sense of smell that occurs. You're listening to Cambridge Forum's discussion of smell and olfactory orgy with Bob Data, Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School, Venki Murthy, Professor of Molecular and Cellular Biology at Harvard Center for Brain Science, and Dr. Herrick Holbrook, Harvard Adjunct Professor and Director of Rhinology at Mass Eye and Ear. Somebody else here, Barbara Sweet, has said, when she was in her 70s, her sense of smell expanded. I'm able to smell scents as far away as a thousand feet. Wow. Adele says, I lost smell, but seem to be able to taste okay. Can smell recover after five years? Clinically, uh, yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, it's not impossible, but we usually use um, on the order of like a year mm. to kind of figure out whether or not the prognosis is better or worse for somebody. If it's a complete loss and they don't have any evidence of ability to detect odors, or have these other signs like parosmia, then you know there's less of a signal that the system is regenerating and returning to function again. But not out of the realm of possibilities. And I would advise anybody who has a smell loss that is persisting to see someone, see a clinician in ENT usually, just to make sure that there's nothing present in the nose or you know a reason that um, can be solved or, you know, at least look into further. Okay. Someone over here points up a very good thing, I think. Uh, Bob, when you said it smells like citrus, what did you mean? I think this is a really good point because we all know that a lemon is a different smell than an orange. Yep. But here we see the deficiency of language in being able to explain the difference. That's right. I think this is a really key question. Like, how do we know that... How, do, how would I know that Venki and Eric, if I hand them both the same orange and I ask what they're smelling, they both say orange. How do I know they're perceiving the same thing? And mm. obviously I can't. Like that's, a, that's an ancient philosophical question. There's no way to know that the orange that Venki reports is the same as the orange that Eric's reporting. But what I can do is hand them an orange, a lemon, and a pizza and ask each of them, you know, which things, lemon or pizza, are more similar to orange. And I can, and I can do that over and over and over again. And if, if you do that, you can almost imagine building a map for smell where 
smells that are related to each other are kind of close to each other because everyone says that lemon is similar to orange but different from pizza. And you can, you can basically build a kind of map of the olfactory world through that kind of technique. And that kind of relational map, which is what we as scientists call it, that kind of map is probably common amongst people, which is why all of us probably think that lemon is more similar in terms of its quality um, to an orange than pizza. Um, and so, there, and so that, that shared kind of uh, commonality and similarity amongst certain kinds of chemicals is what I mean when I say all of us agree that an orange is an orange. That's actually what I mean. I mean, we think that these relationships are, 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 are common amongst us, but there's lots of room for variation. You know, I think lots of people would think that um, there are many, many smells that, that some people will think are similar and other people will think are different. And that variation probably derives from our individual experience. I've often thought that about other senses too, I must say, not just smell. I've often thought when I'm talking about blue and right. you're talking about blue, are we talking about the same thing? I, how do we know? Hard to know. <laughs> Impossible. Uh, I was going to ask you something about processing information because, Bob, your work has a lot to do with how smell helps us in the world and helps us, in fact, navigate and guides our behavior. Could you elaborate on that? For many animals, not all animals, but for many animals, smell is really important for helping them survive, right? So in a mouse, if you, if you genetically modify a mouse so that a mouse can't smell, then those mice can't survive. Like they, requ they require their sense of smell for, for everything, for, for finding um, you know, their mother's teeth at, at birth, for finding food, for finding mates, avoiding predators, finding appropriate shelters, all of those behaviors for a mouse you know, depend critically on the sense of smell. Um, and so, you know, a, a, from a scientific perspective, that, that makes smell very interesting right? because it suggests that, you know, a mouse really takes advantage of its sense of smell to guide it in the world. And so a lot of, from a science perspective, what I think about and what I know Benke thinks about is, you know, how are smells connected to behaviors, right? How does, how does the smell prompt an action? You know, why, when a mouse encounters a cat, why does it run away, right? And, and why, when a mouse encounters peanut butter does it tend to kind of run towards it and try to eat it? You know, what is the diversity of behaviors that smells can elicit, you know, both in animals and in humans? And, and I think, you know, both making, I think that if we can understand a little bit about that relationship, about the relationship between kind of sensation of odors on the one hand and the generation of behaviors and actions in the world on the other, we might be able to get at kind of more fundamental principles about what the brain actually does and how it works. Um, I think I think a lot of our fascination with smell is because it was the first evolved sense, um, and so in some sense, it's a, a kind of scaffold maybe uh, that we can use to that, that's simple that, or sim simpler uh, that might that might get us to better understand complicated things about the brain like cognition. Um, and so, it's so one of our goals. I don't want to speak for you too much, Matthew, but I think one of our our shared goals is to try to try to use our understanding of the sense of smell to better understand how the brain works. And of course, what the brain does, much of what the brain does is about generating behavior in the world. I, I think we, we, as humans, haven't had a, a real appreciation for sensor smell. And in a weird paradoxical sense, you know, this virus is a kind of important tool, both to focus our attention on the importance of smell as humans, but also to understand how smell works. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe the research that will happen over the next few years will, will lead us to a better understanding of how we actually, you know, engage with the olfactory world around us. Yeah, I think one, one sort of semi-philosophical point is that often when you do basic research, you do want to justify saying like, you know, how does it help in you know, humanity? Like, you know, what does it cure or what does it 
how does it make your life better? Which is, I think it's a fair point. I think it was a little harder in, in smell because people thought it was a luxury sense. And I think maybe the one you know, sad but paradoxically helpful thing is that I think we have less of a job now convincing people that it is important because we have large groups of people who know it's important. Well, it's been very, very stimulating. I want to thank Bob Data, who's professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School, Venki Murthy, professor of molecular and cellular biology at Harvard Center for Brain Science, and Eric Colbrook, who is director of phrenology over at Mass Ear. Cambridge Forum is founded through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course you. So if you'd like to donate or just sign up, please go to the website, cambridgeforum.org. There you will find podcasts of this program and lots of others. What can I say, but thank you all for your sense of sense and for all your knowledge and your good work. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much.